Isaiah chapters 3 and 4 today. Many of you have asked, how long is this going to take? And you were judging by the first two weeks, a chapter a week, 66 chapters, 66 weeks. I have said it and I'll say it again, I don't know. We will get there when we get there. But I don't perceive that it'll be 66 weeks. There will be sections of Isaiah where we will take times in Isaiah where we, we will take longer sections, today being one of them, two chapters at a time. But it is so good, it is the word of the Lord to us. Isaiah 3 and 4 contain a message of the whole book of Isaiah, but just in a shorter form. In these two chapters, we have the exposure of sin, we have judgment and discipline from the Lord toward his people. Then we have the Lord's salvation and his solution to that sin, which he himself provides. And then we have a remnant of God's people who will return and remain. And then we have the future of glory, all in this two chapters. So it is the whole book of Isaiah in short form. The emphasis today will be on the purifying work of the Lord in our individual lives and in our collective lives as his people. He did that for Judah in, his, in the day of Isaiah. He's doing that now in his church. That's the emphasis, the purifying work of the Lord, and then also the salvation and the future glory that he will create and provide. We're praying today that God will give us understanding of the message, that he will give us a personal connection to the message and then a proper response. If you'll stand with me in honor of God's word, and we'll read. For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply, all support of bread, all support of water, the mighty men and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50, the man of rank, the counselor and the skillful magician and the expert in charms. And I will make boys their princes, and infants shall rule over them, and the people will oppress one another, everyone his fellow and everyone his neighbor. The youth will be insolent to the elder and the despised to the honorable. For a man will take hold of his brother and in the house of his father, saying, You have a cloak, you shall be our leader, and this heap of ruins shall be under your rule. In that day, he will speak out, saying, I will not be a, leader, a healer. In my house, there is neither bread nor cloak. You shall not make me the leader of the people. For Jerusalem has stumbled, and Judah has fallen, because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. For the look on their face, faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom, they do not hide it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. Tell the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. Woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with them. For what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. My people, infants are their oppressors, and women rule over them. O oh, my people, 
Your guides mislead you, and they have swaddled up the course of your paths. The Lord has taken his place to to contend. He stands to judge peoples. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and the princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard, and the spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people, by grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord of hosts. The Lord said, because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet. Therefore, the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion The Lord will lay bare their secret parts. In that day, the Lord will take away the finery of their anklets and headbands and crescents and pendants and bracelets and scarves and headdresses and armlets and sashes and perfume boxes and amulets and signet rings and nose rings and festal robes and mantles and cloaks and the handbags, the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans and the veils. Instead of perfume, there will be rottenness. Instead of a belt, a rope. Instead of well-set hair, baldness. Instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth. And branding instead of beauty. Your men shall fall by the sword and your mighty men in battle. And her gates shall lament and mourn empty. She shall sit on the ground. And seven women shall take hold of one man in that day, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the land shall be the pride and the honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left In Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy and there will be a booth for shade by day from heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and the rain. This is the word of God for us today. You may be seated. These two chapters, because of their language and their theme and their structure, should go together, and we've taken them together today. The message is this. After judgment comes glory. After judgment, chapter 3, comes glory, chapter 4, for those who respond, repent, and remain. We're going to see why there is judgment. And then we're going to see how there can be future glory. Judgment. 
Judgment has a purifying effect when it's met with repentance and faith. Judgment exposes sin, and it calls people back to the Lord. In judgment, the Lord calls sinful people back to himself and then forward, back to himself and then forward into his glorious future. And the future is provided by the Lord himself. Now, at this point, you might be asking a question about judgment. Because after all, we're told we're not supposed to judge so that we won't be judged. Most often, we hear about judgment as condemnation. Or we might hear about judgment as a final verdict. That's why we react so strongly to the word judgment. You may be reacting this morning when you read Isaiah say that God is going to judge his people. We say, oh, no, God doesn't judge his people. God does other things to his people, but he doesn't judge his people. But yes, he does. Isaiah tells us that the Lord judges his people. So let's talk about judgment before we even look at the text. There are two kinds of judgment. More could be said, but for this morning I'll say there are two kinds of judgment. There is final judgment, which is condemning judgment of unbelieving sinful humanity in humans. We would say that this is at death, as the opportunity to repent and trust in Christ ends at that point, but then is confirmed and will be confirmed when Christ, who judges all, will return. That's the final judgment. Then there is current, active judgment of God toward his people which for Christians today, we would say, and even for Isaiah's day, that Judah and Israel, we would say is discipline. It's judgment in the form of discipline. And the purpose of this judgment in the form of discipline is to call people to repentance, to call people back to Christ in faith and in purity and in holiness. The New Testament actually uses these words, judgment and discipline, in relation to God's people, Christians. 1 Peter 4, Hebrews 12, we'll come back to that in a bit. This current, active judgment of God for unbelievers has the effect of further hardening their sinful hearts because God's Word, his exposing judgment word, lands on an unbelieving heart with resistance and pride and has the effect of further hardening it. We see it in the Old Testament, in Pharaoh, in the book of Exodus. We see it in the New Testament, in the first chapter of Romans. As it says, God gives the unbelieving heart and mind over to its own sin as an act of judgment. The effect of the current judgment of God on Christians is to bring them to repentance. In fact, we could say that the current judgment of God, the current exposure of sin can reveal who is a Christian and who is not a Christian. The person of, genu of genuine faith will actually repent, will not become morally perfect, and will not cease to be tempted and at times even yield to temptation. But the person of faith in Jesus Christ, the person who can say that person is God's child, will in heart 
confess and repent and profess Jesus as Lord and turn back to follow him as a result of the activity of God in his current ongoing discipline of our lives. Today in Isaiah, we're talking about that kind of judgment. We're talking about that kind of discipline, that kind of active judgment and discipline that God has in the lives of his people. That's why we can apply this to ourselves today. Its purpose is to expose sin and lead to repentance back to Christ so that we can then move forward to the future glory that chapter 4 talks about that the Lord himself will create. Now the text. We're in Isaiah's day. We're 700 years before Christ. It's in Judah. And it is a time of spiritual decline. And Isaiah begins by saying, The Lord God of hosts, verse 1, The Creator who made covenant with His people, who now rules over heaven and earth, He is judging and He is disciplining His people. This takes us, this first part takes us from chapter 3, verse 1, through chapter 4, verse 1. That long pronouncement of judgment. And the second half or the second part chapter 4 verses 2 through 6 it is about the Lord purifying his people the remnant who will repent and remain and him taking them into his glory judgment and glory judgment first as I said it's from all of chapter 3 on into chapter 4 and first we hear about the judgment the discipline the pronouncement against the leaders of Israel and they are the men of Israel now, some would say that these leaders slash men are simply representative of the whole social order. But why not be able to see in this a judgment related to the failed leadership among the men of God's people and therefore a social order that is spiraling down because God had called these men to lead his people for good order. That's the first part of the judgment. The second part of the judgment is related to the daughters or the women. And some would say, well, <clears throat> this is representative of the whole of Judah and her pride, Judah be, being the woman here. But why can't this also be the judgment of both the proud women and of a proud nation? This is the way the text seems to read more naturally. The failed male leadership at the first part and the sinful, proud women in the second part. So specifically, he is talking to men and women who are failing and sinning in Isaiah's day because they're failing to live out as, to live as God called them to, and then generally he is speaking of the effect that has on the whole nation. When we read the epistles, <clears throat> we finished 1 Peter here, back in the spring, and then we went into June, finished the book of First Peter. And you'll remember that we heard there two chapters that were specifically addressing men, women, and elders. And we saw similar callings in the New Testament that we are seeing here in Isaiah related to the leadership of men in the home, in the church, and genuine beauty that he was addressing to the women. It's there in the New Testament. We need to read it, and we need to believe that it's good, and we need to pursue it. 
And the failure in this respect is seen here in Isaiah 3, and that's what the judgment is all about. Chapter 3, verse 1, generally speaking, the Lord is taking away some things. This is judgment. Do you see the word there? The Lord, God of hosts, is, verse 1, taking away. He says later in verse 18, he is going to take away. So the judgment that's coming here is the Lord taking some things away. In contrast, by the way, to the glory we're going to get to in chapter 4 when he says he's going to create something. The Lord says in chapter 3, verse 1, he is going to take away support and supply. This is part of his judgment. The things that they have trusted in to meet their needs rather than trusting in the Lord. The things that they pursued as their love and their loyalty rather than the Lord. The things that they set in the place of the Lord God as priority in their lives. These were flawed and they failed them. And God will take them away. They may need some of these things at some level, but they have exalted them to the place of God. And in the judgment, the discipline of the Lord, he removes it, he takes it away. Now specifically, to the leadership, he takes it away. Verses 2 through 15. Again, it's, it's clear by the language that they're being ruled over by infants and ruled over by women, that it's the male leadership that the Lord has set over his people and they have failed and they are being removed. Verse 14 names specifically elders and princes. We'll get to that in a moment. Now what's happening here is really interesting. This is judgment because they have failed. They're removed in judgment because they have failed and the removal itself is judgment. So God had called these leaders to lead well and they didn't, they sinned. And so he judged them And then the removal of them was actually his judgment. It's a cycle. He's speaking specifically to the leadership of his people at this time. Evangelicals who affirm the Bible's teaching on gender roles affirm the unique calling of male leadership in the home and in the church. Again, read the epistles. And we can see when that male leadership fails, when it sins, when it doesn't do its job and live responsibly as God has called leaders to do, then there's all kinds of harm, all kinds of disorder, all kinds of chaos, and we see it in families, and we see it in churches, and we see it in societies. When men neglect their call to godly leadership, to godly, self-sacrificing, servant-oriented, for the good of others kind of leadership, then they are judged. They're disciplined. And the judgment is the removal of leadership. And everybody suffers. And so it goes down the spiral into leaderless chaos Until God, by his grace and mercy, calls us back to repentance and faith and faithfulness. The evidence of judgment is found in verses 2 through 5. He says, he's going to remove your mighty men, your soldiers, your judges, your prophets, your diviners, your, your elders, your captains, your skillful magician, the expert in charms. In other words, good and bad are going to be removed. And what is, what is indicative of the chaos of the time is that the elders, verse 2, are mixed in with the magicians and the charmers, verse 3. 
This is a problem. This is part of the indictment against them. Verse 4 is a reversal of who should be in charge. It says, boys and infants will rule. Now, don't hear that as cute. Oh, isn't it cute? The boys and the infants get to be in charge. That's a judgment. And then in verses 6 and 7, he says, they won't even be able to find anyone to lead them. There will be no qualified leaders at some point, when, when things spiral so far down, they look at a guy and he's got a cloak. And he say, you've, you've at least got a coat. Come be our leader. He says, not me. Verses 8 and 9 or 8 and following tell us why. What's the problem? What, what, what have the leaders done? Where, where have they led the people? <clears throat> Verse 8. They've led them to speak against the Lord and to, to defy his glorious presence, to defy his various face. Various translations, one of them is to actually be arrogant in the face of God. To glorify themselves and to take the holiness of God lightly. The, the leaders have failed to lead the people to God. They've, they've, the people have now stood up in the face of God. And defied his very glorious presence. We'll come, the presence, remember that. We'll see that at, at, when God restores things. We're back into his presence, thank the Lord. Verse 9, a second problem they have is that they, <clears throat> they proclaim their sins like Sodom. And that means they parade them. That means they go public with their pride over their sin. God's people do this. I recall back in June during some of the pride marches that some churches and Christians would, went there to evangelize. But others went and set up booths and actually were sponsors. In other words, they were proclaiming their sin like Sodom. And the leaders failed to lead them. And a third problem verses 13 through 15 they used their leadership for selfish gain <clears throat> they used people for their personal needs the apostle peter warned against this and here the prophets and the elders are doing it the leaders are doing it they are using people for their own personal needs and their own personal desires and in doing so they left people in poverty he speaks of both elder and prince, which could be an indicator that the leadership of Israel at that time, the princes were acting in such a way that the people were actually left in literal material poverty, and they had no concern. In fact, they misused the people, leaving them in poverty to pad their own homes. But the elders were leaving people in spiritual poverty, because they weren't feeding the people the word of God and, and nourishing their souls. The point. Failure of leadership leads to judgment. Discipline. And judgment is the removal of leadership. It is a cycle. If we say there are no leaders... It could be that we're under God's judgment, discipline. 
because leaders haven't led. And what is the call? The call is to repentance. God restores, God restores where people will repent. The second half of this judgment section is pride is going to be taken away. Verses, uh, verse 16 of chapter three on through chapter four, verse one. He says in verse 16, the daughters of Zion are haughty. Rather than having inward beauty, they have the trappings of beauty. And he speaks about this beginning in verse 18 or actually verse 17. He says, they're over-adorned seductive ways. In doing this, the, the women reflect a rejection of what God has called them to, which is inward godliness. They have a rejection of inward godliness and they set their hearts on the external trappings of beauty and therefore against the Lord. So all the outward, verse 18, all the outward trappings of beauty that they trusted in to express themselves and to secure their needs are going to be taken away. It's a long list, starting in verse 18. He says, the Lord will take away the finery of their anklets and then a long list of outward trappings that the women were using to express themselves and to secure their own needs as they saw them, but not trust the Lord that will be taken away. In verse 26, he says, instead of getting what they wanted, they get the opposite. Rather than perfume, it'll be rottenness. Rather than a nice belt, a, a, a rope tied around the waist to hold up sackcloth. Chapter 4, verse 1, they will be left in such a desperate state of insecurity. That's what, that's what you hear there. Seven women taking hold of one man in that day saying, we'll eat our own bread and wear our own clothes, just take away our reproach. It's a desperate state of insecurity, willing to go to great lengths to not come under reproach. Not trusting the Lord, not setting the heart on the Lord, not following the ways of the Lord, rather taking on the world's ideas and the world's judgments which are proud and lifted up and self-exalted is going to lead to judgment and the judgment will lead to the taking away of the things that we trust and we seek it's a call it's another call to repentance the men and the women the whole nation is being called to repentance now the question is this is it possible to survive the judgment of the lord and the discipline of the lord to the point of actually returning to him in, in faith and in faithfulness. Is that even possible? If you're sitting here today and you say, we've just gone too far, you're asking that question. Is it even possible? Who can survive the discipline and the judgment of the Lord when people turn their backs on him? The answer is, yes, it's possible. Of course it's possible or else the Lord wouldn't be exposing the sin. He wouldn't be calling back if it wasn't possible. Yes, it's possible to return to faithfulness to God and it's possible to do more than that. It is possible to move into the future of glory with Christ. And this is something that God must do himself. If you've ever asked the question, what do I have to do to get back? 
The real answer, the true answer, the, the fundamental answer is you can't do anything to get back. God has to get you back. Now you can repent. We can turn. We can be reason. We can come let us reason, chapter 1. We can be reasonable with the Lord. We can see his grace. We can, we can understand his goodness. We can follow his ways. We can do that. But, but really, it's the Lord himself who must provide and bring us back into fellowship with him and faithfulness to him and then move us on into the glory to come. And thank the Lord, that's chapter four. Aren't you glad we did two chapters today? <laughs> chapter four, verse two through six is glory, glory. And with that, grace. And with that, goodness. In this section <clears throat> something is taken away you remember in chapter three what was taken away leadership external trappings of beauty but in chapter four something is taken away but what's taken away here is sin <laughs> what's taken away here is our guilt What's taken away here is the filth of the daughters of Zion and the bloodstain of Jerusalem from the elders and the princes What's taken away here is sin and stain. We're washed by the Lord. <clears throat> In chapter 3, spoke of the taking away of judgment. Chapter 4 uses a beautiful word. It is the Lord will create There he took away in judgment. <clears throat> here he creates in grace and in glory. Verse 2. <clears throat> it begins in that day. We've heard it again over and over in Isaiah. The day. A day is coming. There's a day today. There's a day to come. There's a final day. In that day, it begins with the branch of the Lord. Now, Isaiah and all the prophets speak in this language, this poetic language of imagery, metaphor. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. Well, what is that? In chapter 11 of Isaiah, the branch will come, and the branch will be filled with the Spirit, and the branch will bear fruit. In chapter 53, the branch is called the young plant that grows up among God's people that becomes rejected, is suffers, is a substitutionary servant who dies on behalf of others, but then wins them and brings them unto God. That's the branch. In the books of Jeremiah and Zechariah, two other prophets, they speak of a branch that is coming, that is the branch of David, one who will come from the line of David, one who will establish a kingdom of righteousness and justice. A branch that will build a temple. And get this, a priest will sit on the throne that's in the temple. It's, it's priest and king together. Now what we're getting here is what some, something that, that Isaiah and the prophets do all along. They're giving us glimpses, prophetic visions of the Messiah. Here he is called the branch of the Lord. Verse 2, <clears throat> he has true beauty and true glory. And through him, 
the fruit of faithfulness to the Lord will be the honor and the pride. There's true pride. The pride of God's people will be the branch and the fruit that the branch brings of of faithfulness. In verse 2, Isaiah calls God's people the survivors. Verse 3, those who are left, those who remain. Who are they? Who's he talking about? He's talking about a remnant. He's talking about those who are kept by God and His grace. Those of true faith. Those who show that they are God's people because they return and they repent in faith and they remain in faith while others turn away. In chapter 3 and verse 10, He called them the righteous. Not self-righteous. But the righteous who are called by God's grace and walk with the Lord. He says, it shall be well with them. By the Spirit, verse 4, by the Spirit of judgment and the Spirit of burning, the Lord will purify and cleanse and wash these people, this remnant. For these, the judgment, the discipline of the Lord served its purpose. It was a job well done by the Lord. He saved His people. These are the people of chapter 4. These are the people of the remnant. These are the people who will glory in the branch that bears the fruit. They will be saved. But saved for what? The language, again, we're getting in the language. Saved for what? What does he say? Verse 5, he said there's going to be a cloud by day and a fire by night that will be over his holy mountain. He says it this way, the Lord God will create. There's that word. He's doing something new. God is doing something new. He's creating over the whole site of Mount Zion and over the assemblies. That's God's people. A cloud by day and smoke and the shining of flaming fire by night. Save for what? Save for the divine presence. Do you remember the nation of Israel when they were brought out of slavery in Egypt and they went into the wilderness and they said, who's going to lead us? How are we going to know him? How are we going to follow him? How are we going to see him? Where is he? And the Lord said, I'm going to give you a pillar of, of, of cloud <clears throat> by day and a pillar of, pillar of fire by night, and this will be my presence, and I will be with you. What is God saving his people for? What is God calling us in repentance back to him for? He is saving us for his presence. What do you want? What do you think you need? We need the presence of the Lord. What will heaven be? The presence of the Lord. Now, I don't mean to be overly corrective toward people who long for things that they've enjoyed on earth to continue on in heaven. And we don't know what the new heaven and the new earth are going to be like completely. And there will be some continuity between here and there. So we're not exactly sure what life is going to be like. But this we do know. This we do know. It will be in the presence of the Lord. What is going to make eternity with Christ glorious is that Christ is going to be there. And he's calling his people back into his very presence now. Divine presence is the glory of the Lord that he's calling us into. And we're pilgrims and we're moving forward and life is short. And we must cast an eye there because there is his presence in fullness Yes, we have the Spirit now. We have the presence now. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me now. But the fullness of the divine presence will be enjoyed then. God is making that new and he's calling us into that. 
And along with divine presence, there's divine protection. He says in verse six, there's a booth. And that booth is going to protect shade and shelter. And again, we think of the nation of Israel when they came out into into the wilderness and they lived in booths. They lived in tents, coverings, so the sun wouldn't strike them by day. And the storm wouldn't wash them away. They were protected. And then there's divine fellowship. Verse 5. This is an interesting way of saying it. He says he's going to create over this whole site this this cloud by day of smoke and this shining and flaming fire by night. And then over all the glory there will be a canopy. What is this about? And some people see here, and I'm going to agree with them, a reference to the wedding canopy, the hoopah, where God says, my people are going to be like a bride. We sang about it this morning. My people are going to be my people, and I'm going to cover them, and we're going to live in divine fellowship forever. This is what the Lord will do. The Lord will create a place, a place for his people, a place to be with him, a place to be protected by him, a place to fellowship with him. And he will do this through a branch, a glorious, beautiful branch. The unfolding of God's word gives light. So we keep unfolding. We're in Isaiah. And now let's unfold. Let's just take another, another layer and, and peel it back and unfold and unfold and unfold until we get to Jesus in Luke chapter 4. And he picks up Isaiah. And he says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. And what Isaiah said is fulfilled in me. And let's unfold one more until we get to Luke chapter 24. And Jesus walks down that road with those two men who are wondering what just happened. We thought he was the Messiah. He was crucified. We don't know where he is. And Jesus opened up the scripture and showed them how Isaiah prophesied of him. He's the branch. He's the beautiful, the glorious branch. The unfolding of God's word gives light. The more it unfolds, the light gets brighter and brighter and brighter. And we see a person, a living person, Jesus Christ. What is God doing? In detail, we don't know. People often ask me, my life is in hardship and struggle. What is God doing? And I think what they want me to do is to be able to tell them in great detail how God is orchestrating events to get them to the right place. That way I can tell them what road not to take and what road to take. And it just doesn't work like that in detail. We've got to walk by faith. But we can say that God is doing something. And here's what he's doing. In grace and in love and in purpose and in power, God is disciplining his people. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 4, judgment begins with the house of the Lord. And he was a New Testament apostle. Judgment, discipline begins with Christians and the church. 
The writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews chapter 12, like a loving father toward his children, the Lord disciplines his people. He is leading us through discipline to maturity, to faith, to holiness, to complete trust in him so that we may see him. We are told to pursue the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And therefore God himself is committed to making us holy so that we will see the Lord. Can you feel the love in that? Can you sense today the love in that? I don't like the discipline of the Lord in terms of the feeling of it. But how the Lord reminds us that, that when he is exposing our hearts and when we are opening them up to him and when we are letting his word do its work and we're letting his spirit do his work and it's driving us back to him in humility, at times it does not feel good, but the thing that moves us forward is to know this is the loving work of a heavenly father who wants to move his church forward into glory. The discipline of the Lord leads to holiness, and holiness leads into His glory. Lift your eyes, congregation. Beyond the moment to what our God is doing and what He will do and where He wants to take His church. Where He will take His church because His purposes cannot be thwarted. And he did not send his son Jesus Christ to die for a church that he won't get all the way home. Praise his name. So what do we do? Let's understand the work. Not ours, his. Discipline for purity. Purity to know him. Knowing him in his glory. Then, Let's let him do his work. Now, I just use the word let. I do not mean that we have power over the Lord. I mean, let's yield to what he is doing. Let it be in your life as you pray and seek him. And then, come to Christ. Turn to Christ. Don't turn to self-will. Don't turn to your own moral remedies to clean yourself up. That's not going to work. Turn to Christ. He died for you. He loves you. He embraces you. He welcomes you. He'll walk with you. He'll fill you with the Spirit. Keep going to Jesus Christ over and over and over again. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Christ. That's the road to renewal. And follow Him and obey Him and look forward to glory. Father, thank you for your word today.